Okay, good afternoon, evening, whatever time of day it is. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 287, and today is a doubly auspicious day. It is, well, trebly, really, because it is almost, uh, and in fact, in about an hour and a half, will be uh, Tolkien's birthday, which is always a fun day. And that also means that we are at the anniversary of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, which began on Tolkien's birthday, lo, these seven years ago. So it is our seventh anniversary of the start um, and who would have thought we'd have come so far as near to the gates of Moria in only <laughs> seven years? Um, this is uh, uh, this is fine, fine progress. Um, so uh, so uh, but in addition to these auspicious things, I am also joined by a special guest um, uh, today in my announcement segments. I wanted to tell you about a new Tolkien book that has just recently been released by Tom Hillman. And I'm honored to have Tom with me here today. Tom has been a uh, longtime attendee of Exploring the Lord of the Rings and uh, uh, many other things. Um, Tom, thanks for being with me tonight. Thank you for having me, Corey. It's a great pleasure. Yeah. So, so tell folks about your book. I know this is something that's been uh, kind of brewing for a long time, and I know we've we've had many conversations over the years. Yeah. And it's really yeah. really fun to see this coming together. Well, uh, it just uh, was officially released uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there it is. It's called "Pity, Power, and Tolkien's Ring: To Rule the Fate of Many." It's from uh, Kent State University Press, home of. Uh, many other uh, uh, fine uh, Tolkien books by yes. Roland Flieger and others. Uh, so uh, it's a good home for uh, a good, good place to look for inkling stuff. Yes. Uh, sure. One of the nice things about uh, Kent State is that the books are uh, reasonably priced, which for academic books, you know, is uh, <laughs> not you know, usual. It's <laughs> really something these days. Yes, it sure is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I bought some hardcovers from a certain publisher who shall remain nameless. Last year I bought, there was 75% off. I bought three of them and it still cost me 125 bucks. <laughs> so, uh, so this is only 40 bucks. Hey. So it, it, it's, you could buy three of them for that. <laughs> for less bucks. than that. Look at that. Exactly. For less than that. But uh, it's, uh, it's, so it's available as, uh, as this, you know, as a ebook, as well as, uh, as well as a, a paperback. Wonderful. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been uh, it's been pretty cool so far. Just trying to get used to the idea of, wait a minute, the thing on the table. I wrote it. You <laughs> yes, know, it is a surreal. Stack of paper, or a, right? Especially you know. after you know it's been, you know, a project and a thing that you've been working on and th thinking about. Just to, to see it like outside of your right. head and on a table is kind of surreal. It, it's it's kind of like you know suddenly it's like. Plato's cave and you get to go outside though and see the real yes. you know, the real ideas you know so uh, it's uh, yeah it's uh, it, it's it, it's it's pretty cool and it's still like I'll stop I'll look at it and go what really right but uh, yeah it's 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 nice that it's uh, it's finally out there yeah so, so uh, let's t tell folks about um, you know sort of the 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 book, how it works, what you're, what okay. you're sort of, are you, you're, you know, uh, what you're, you know, discussing in the Lord of the Rings and sort of the scope of it and things, so people can understand that a little better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the book basically takes off from the uh, from the conversation 
between Gandalf uh, and Frodo. Mm -hmm. And that's where the idea originally came from, because, of course, as everybody knows, uh, Gandalf really wants Frodo to pity Gollum. Yes. And he points out that that's a very, uh, you know, he, he, I mean, he really presses Frodo on this. And, yes. And, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and Frodo, you know, doesn't want to do it. And Frodo doesn't do it at that point. Um, but, you know, it's like this idea that the pity of Bilbo, you know, may rule the fate of many. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in that very same conversation, uh, when Frodo says to him, you know what, this is too big for me. You take it. And Gandalf's like, no, 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 don't tempt me. Pity is the way of the ring to my heart. Mm -hmm. And so you have this kind of paradox here. Right. Where on the one hand you have, pity may save the world. Yes. But it won't necessarily save you. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, because even the, because the, the power of the ring is such that uh, it will prevail over the pity of this world. You know, and any pity you may feel within yourself, it will eventually um, uh, uh, prevail over. You know, so that's uh, that's basically where it starts. It's just trying to sort of work out the dynamic, uh, this dynamic of how pity can uh, can be both of these things, mm -hmm. and also, and that of course involved, since pity is opposed to the ring, because the ring is was made to rule the fate of many. Right. You know? And, and and so, you know, Frodo is carrying the ring, uh, and even when he comes to feel pity, it's this it's this he's got there's pity on the one hand and then there's the ring working on him on, on, on the other, all the way, you know, to Mordor. And so I, I eventually figured out that I had to what I had to do is I you know, I had to work out this whole not just the Pity paradox, but also the the uh, the whole dynamic of how the ring and pity uh, interact, mm -hmm. and I figured the only the only way to do that was to uh, start at the beginning, right. you know. And so the book, uh, you know, there aren't the chapters aren't thematic, the chapters are like you know from uh, you know from Rivendell to Almond Hen, from you know the Dead Marshes to the Black Gate, because right. I could I you know I had to walk with Frodo and Sam to Mordor and pay very close attention along the way to, you know, everything that had to do with the ring or pity or, or you know, or, or, or any of that. So, yes. uh, and, and so that's, that's basically, uh, basically how the book works. Um, you know, and I also, you know, uh, it also plays off the, uh, the scene, uh, the chapter five of The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, because of course, once to, once the ring changes from being Uncle Bilbo's magic ring of convenient invisibility uh, into you know the, the ring that's going to dominate the world, um, and he puts Bilbo's pity in there. Yes, uh, it's like th th that scene where where Bilbo pities Gollum is it kind of keeps coming back. It's almost like it's like replayed over and over and over again where there's this choice you know where you know Frodo has to make the you know the, uh, the choice he has to make it with Gollum obviously he also makes, he makes very similar choice in the Barrow right where he you know he's he, he you know he is changed because it, if he goes one way he can keep going if he goes the other way he's taken the ring he's fallen yes. you know and, and, and that sort of thing and so this scene keeps getting in a way re, you know repeated over and over again where this this kind of 
tests, so to speak. Right, right. You know, and, and I don't mean that anyone's actually testing them, uh, but is is being is being rehearsed, and it goes all the way from, uh, you know, from from uh, chapter five of the uh, the 1951 Hobbit, to uh, uh, you know, through to uh, Frodo talking to Saruman at yes. the uh, you know at the end in the Shire. Yeah, yeah, it's that's really good. Did did you, did you notice one one thing that just really struck me recently was the particular, especially in relationship to that the pity moment in chapter five of the Hobbit, mm. um, the way that Tolkien retells the story in the prologue, mm-hmm. right? Where on the mm-hmm. one hand he seems to me to make Gollum more pitiable, and yet. Mm-hmm kind of de-emphasizes that moment mm-hmm. like he doesn't recapitulate that right. moment of pity right. he kind of glosses over it and I mean just he right. observes that Gollum does you know Bilbo does not stab Gollum in yeah. fact right um, but that that the motivation for that like the you know that that whole that whole moment of pity gets gets kind of smoothed over a bit and then given that Gandalf comes back and rests on that so heavily in chapter two, um, it, stri- it strikes me as really interesting. It strikes me as almost like sort of sit- trying to set up the reader to right. to sort of well, see I mean, that. But you also, sort of you also that. get a lot of that in the interaction between Gandalf and Bilbo in right. chapter in chapter one, right? You know, because you know chapter one and, and chapter two are very much you know obviously very much mirrors of each other, you know, uh, and. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in the prologue, there's, there's so many interesting things about that in the prologue. You know, there's, you know, on the one hand, you know, Gollum is more pitiable, but on the other hand, he's really kind of monstrous. Uh, if, uh, and then on the other hand, you find out that, uh, you know, Bilbo may have admitted to Frodo and Gandalf and the people at the council that he had lied to the dwarves and put a lie into his book, but he never went back and changed it in the book. Right. You know, right. and and so that 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 right there tells you in one in some ways how very powerful, you know, uh, how much power the ring still had over him was that the, the self deception that he just he just couldn't go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Frodo, of course, and, and and Sam had too much respect for Bilbo to actually change any of his words. Yes, you know, uh, so I don't know whether they wrote it in the margin or you know or you know uh, tacked it in uh, somehow. But uh, it was there, and then eventually it got written into the book. But uh, but th- that's another thing. And then there's just the, the whole thing about, you know, whatever thoughts come to you when you have the ring about what you could do with it, it's a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a lie. And, you know, and, and I don't think it's a lie the ring is telling you because I don't believe the ring is, con- is conscious, mm-hmm. you know, or sentient. I think of the ring more as gravity. Right. You know, the effect of the ring is more like gravity. Uh, you know, the more powerful you are, just like the bigger you are, the bigger the two bodies in the in the uh, in the gravitational field, the more effect they have on each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and, and so, it's it's the, um, you know, they they. Um, so anyway, whatever. So, the truth is one of the first casualties, right? You know, of 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 having the ring. You know, uh, it's my birthday present. It's my wear guild. It's my, it's it's. I want it. I you know. I this it. I that it. It's all, and they're all the same lie. And Gandalf is anticipating that same thing, right? Oh, it will serve. Yes. I you know I, I I feel pity for these people, and it it could help me help them, right? So that's mm-hmm. the. Um, you wonder if Gandalf is hearing that you know that internal monologue, or if he just sees it coming, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Galadriel too, and you know, and Boromir. 
you know, and, and you know, Saruman and Dean Thor and, you know, yeah. and, and, and everybody, you know, along the line. They, they all have their own little, you know, even Sam, right? You know, uh, Sam has his ring-induced yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> moment where he, uh, you know, he imagines, what does he imagine he's going to be but a wizard and a warrior, just like they had predicted for him. Exactly. And he had said, no, no, no. No, no, exactly. Well, yeah, but what's the temptation? It's that. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. So it. But yes. it's and Frodo, Frodo's going down a very dark road, you know, uh, and, and it, it can't be helped because you know nobody, uh, no matter who had it, it would be a dark road, right? You know, the only, uh, I mean, I heard someone talking about, you know, you know, what could the Valar have done with the ring at one point, and it was like, well, the Valar are more powerful than the craft that created the ring, so the the ring wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't corrupt Aule, it wouldn't corrupt Manwe, but they would just go, you know, nope, no, just get it out of here, you know, they wouldn't accept it as as elrond said not our problem <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know so in uh, but 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 that's that's you know kind of an interesting point you, you'd have to be because i mean it's like gandalf says that it could it, it ha would have to be destroyed by something someone that had a greater craft that had gone into making it you know and and and, and so uh you, there's no overcoming the ring there's no resisting the ring you know uh and and uh so Frodo is pulled down this very dark path and interestingly enough like just the whole thing with pity pity being the road to Gandalf's heart it's you know uh, for the ring to Gandalf's heart it's the same with Frodo because this, when Frodo finally meets Gollum mm -hmm. and having gone through all he's gone through himself finally sees him as pitiable he then is faced with the dilemma of having been in a situation where he could have killed him and said Hey, he was he was strangling Sam, mm -hmm. you know. So you can't say I struck without need, right? You know, there would be a, a you know a, a, a plausible justification there, you know. And and uh, but what you have is you have uh, Frodo has to then try and control Gollum, and he first he tries to be nice, but you know you can't be nice with Gollum, you know Gollum's why they can't have nice things, right? Uh, and then he tr tries to tie him up, and that doesn't work. And the only thing he finds that will con that will control Gollum at all for a little while is by making him swear by the ring. And I can just imagine Gandalf's hat would have caught and caught on fire, <laughs> yes. and burst into flames if he had heard Frodo stand there and let Gollum call him Master of the Precious. Yes, exactly. You know. And and so the, the the pity actually it does does exactly to Frodo what it, it you know Gandalf is afraid it will do to him. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean that that moment it's it's a it's a real facepalm moment there mm -hmm. when Frodo because you're right he's being pity he's being mm -hmm. you know he he is pitying um, Gollum in that moment and yeah it, that's um, I mean the only thing that's sketchier than that is later on when he threatens to command him to commit suicide. Yes. <laughs> right. yeah, it gets really, really ugly outside the gate. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's what, that's what, 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 five, six days later. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's easy. It's so sometimes so easy to forget how much time passes or doesn't pass. You mm -hmm. know, I, I mean, the difference between, uh, or, or the, the, when Boromir takes the ring and when Frodo meets, tries to take the ring and Frodo meets Gollum, it's like three days. Right. Right. So, you know, he just saw what Boram, what the ring did to Boromir like right. three days ago. You know, and then, you know, from from uh, 
from when they meet Gollum until uh, when Gollum, you know, betrays them and Kirithungal is like two is like two weeks. Right. Right. You know, so so they're actually you know Frodo and Gollum are actually together like very short period of time. You know, but it's all it's so amazingly uh, amazingly revealing. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I, I know we could talk for a long time. We should probably get to class. But thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. I, I, your book is so interesting. I, this is such an important topic. Um, the I feel like this is something, uh, this topic, the topic of pity and the relationship with the ring. It's one of those things which, like, the importance of it is clear, right? I mean, the, the big deal yeah. that Gandalf makes of it, the fact that we get that, you know, verbatim quote flashback which of course is you will point out is not exactly the same (laughs) with some variations but anyway like that that, i mean it's it's just i mean tolkien sets off all these fireworks to show how important that idea and that moment is um and so i'm just i I was ever since i found out about your book i've just been so delighted that you're doing this kind of a, a really uh you know close and uh thoughtful treatment of this uh really important subject so um so glad been waiting for this book to come out for a while so i hope that we've uh we have if somebody could repost the link there in discord i'll post it i see ah druid's fire posted it already i'm gonna post it again because we can do that um so um yeah i'm just gonna repost it there's the direct link to your books page on kent university press um page so yeah anyway um, well, you know, what, one just one thing, Corey. Yeah. Was that, you know, in 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 many ways, the germ of this book came from the conversation we had. Was it must be ten years ago, uh, when back in the in the in 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 the uh, our salad days, uh, <laughs> when when we could do the entire two towers in what was it twelve <laughs> sessions? Yes. You know, so uh, that, and we had some great conversations about, uh, you know, about the sta- about the scene on the stairs. Yes. You know, and 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 all, and, and and that, and of course, there's the most the scene on the stairs with Gollum is, of course, the in a way one more of those scenes. Yes. Where here now the reader is in the position of Bilbo. Yes. Yes. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway. Wonderful. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks so much. Congratulations on the completion of this project. I'm uh, hoping lots of people get a chance to read it. I've been seeing lots of people uh, commenting on it and even purchasing it now as we're talking. So um, I I hope hope you guys will get a chance to read it. Thank you, Tom. Um, Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll maybe have you on again sometime. So thank you. Sure. Thank you, Corey. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Okay, so let me, um, yeah, thank you, Zoom. I appreciate all of Zoom's pop-up windows. Okay, sorry, and we are, there we go. And I'm going to do another thing, too. Okay, there we go. Okay, excellent. So thanks, everybody. So this, as I said, this was uh, instead of my normal announcement segment here tonight, I wanted to have Tom on to talk about uh, his excellent new book. I'm so excited. I haven't got a chance to read it yet because I've been traveling and stuff, but I'm really looking forward to that. So um, this is a this is a, a book I've been counting down uh, until it is released. So, um, all right, let's get back to the text here. Um, 
And yes, Arnas, you're right. One of the most proximate other announcements that we have is the approach of Osmoot in Australia, which is going to be so much fun. So yes, the end of this very month will be um, our delightful time in Australia for Osmoot, which is going to be so cool. Um, all right, let's um, let's jump into the text here. All right. Concerning elves and dwarves, that's where we are. Gandalf says, after seven years, Well, here we are at last, said Gandalf. Here the elven way from Holland ended. Holly was the token of the people of that land, and they planted it here to mark the end of their domain. For the west door was made chiefly for their use in their traffic with the lords of Moria. Those were happier days, when there was still close friendship at times between folk of different race, even between dwarves and elves. It is not the fault of the dwarves that the friendship waned, said Gimli. I have not heard that it was the fault of the elves, said Legolas. I have heard both, said Gandalf, and I will not give judgment now. But I beg you too, Legolas and Gimli, I beg you too, Legolas and Gimli, at least, to be friends, and to help me. I need you both. The doors are shut and hidden, and the sooner we find them, the better. Night is at hand. Turning to the others, he said, While I am searching, will you each make ready to enter the mines? For here I fear we must say farewell to our good beast of burden. You must lay aside much of the stuff that we brought against bitter weather. You will not need it inside, nor, I hope, when we come through and journey down into the south. Instead, each of us must take a share of what the pony carried, especially the food and the water skins. All right. Um, So... Gandalf begins here. Um, so let's remember where we just were for a second. Um, so we have uh, descript- We had the, the 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 ripples, the black black edged with shadow in the waning light. Actually, hang on a second. I, do we actually finish this other slide? I'm having vague feelings that we didn't finish actually talking about all of this. I want to go backwards now. No, we didn't really, did we? Okay, hang on. All right. Briefly, briefly returning to this other slide. Okay, okay. Um, let me read this one then first. Okay, <laughs> this may seem like retrograde motion, but it's not. This is which we we can't just rush off, hair away, and leave these. Okay, okay. Um, right, we were t- we we talked about the soundscape of these paragraphs, but we didn't get that to talk that much about the content. That was it. Okay, okay. Um, As Sam, the last of the company, led Bill up onto the dry ground on the far side, there came a soft sound, a swish followed by a plop, as if a fish had disturbed the still surface of the water. Turning quickly, they saw ripples, black-edged with shadow in the waning light. Great rings were widening outwards from a point far out in the lake. There was a bubbling noise and then silence. The dusk deepened, and the last gleams of the sunset were veiled in cloud. Um... Okay, so this is the first indication. The hints that we have gotten about the lake so far is about its unwholesomeness. Um, and remember the, the, the sort of physically disgusting descriptions of the stagnant water and the greasy stones and, uh, and things like that and how unclean it felt on Frodo's feet. Um, and... Um, now 
this is the first evidence that we have that there is anything actually in it. Um, a swish followed by a plop, as if a fish had disturbed the still surface of the water. That interpretation, as if a fish had disturbed the st still surface of the water, seems optimistic, right? That is, if anything, that would be sort of cheerful, wouldn't it? I mean, the water looks dead and looks unlikely to, you know, nourish any living creature other than, like, bacteria. Um, but, Gilgalady, I agree. The as-if is a little bit suspicious, right? A little bit ominous. Um, it's as if a fish had disturbed the still surface of the water. Um, the thing that's I, I love the description of the ripples. They saw ripples, black-edged with shadow. Great rings were widening outwards from a point far out in the lake. This, on the one hand, that's perfectly natural. That's what happens, in fact, when the still surface of the water is disturbed. Right? There should be these kind of widening rings of ripples on the water. On the one hand, it's um, it suggests that whatever disturbed the water was fairly large, right? Um, but on the other hand, uh, it gives this sense of approaching something, right? Um, the great rings widening outwards from a point far out in the lake. So we, we, there was something out there and that they're seeing the ripples um, edged with shadow moving towards them. Right. But it's 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 just it's just the ripples from the disturbance of the lake surface. Right. It's um, uh, presumably nothing else. That's normal. That action is normal. But again, there's there's it gives this sense of something coming towards them. To me, the most ominous touch in this whole description was there was a bubbling noise and then silence. It could be a fish. could be a fish that would... Um, uh, again, that would be encouraging, if anything. Um, but the bubbling noise is disturbing. It's true that fish can cause bubbles. Like, yeah, sure. Very possible, right? Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, um, especially when coupled with, notice how the description is juxtaposing the sounds that they're hearing and the description of the oncoming night, right? The ripples are black-edged with shadow. There was a bubbling noise and then silence the, the dusk deepened, right? Darkness is falling like it's supposed to. It's the end of the day, totally normal, nothing to be afraid of here, but again, the way that all of this comes together to create this atmosphere of uncertainty or fear um, is, I think, really powerfully done in this whole, in this whole sequence. Um, 
Gandalf now pressed on at a great pace. So they, we talked a little bit about this in the context of looking at the sounds last time. Um, the strip of dry land between the lake and the cliffs. It was narrow, hard, often hardly a dozen yards across, which is actually not that narrow, right? That is, it's, we're not talking about a, a ledge that's only, you know, like less than a meter wide or something like that, right? Um, uh, there's a there's a fair space, but it's but it's relatively tight, and it certainly is going to restrict their ability to pick a path over fallen rock and stones, right? Um, because this strip is encumbered with those things. But they found a way, hugging the cliff and keeping as far from the dark water as they might. Notice what Tolkien has not told us here. Tolkien doesn't give us any words or any thoughts. He doesn't get us inside anybody's head. We don't get a comment from Sam. We don't get um, any words from anybody. We don't know what they're thinking. We're just... Notice how he's indirectly showed us what they're thinking. Everyone in the company is uneasy about the water. Um, They're keeping as far from the dark water as they might. The dark water. I mean, of course, it's getting dark. Yeah, the water is going to be dark, especially when it's sort of discolored and uh, and thick. But um, uh, but yeah, the 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 connection of it there again. Notice how now up in the first paragraph, the falling darkness and the description of the water were just kind of juxtaposed next to each other, right? Now they've been combined. Now the water is itself dark water. Right, the darkness and the lake are now, like in our minds, thoroughly a team, right? But again, I would draw our attention to how indirectly Tolkien has let us know about the um, uh, their feelings about the lake, right? Um, just that reference to them keeping as far from it as they might. A mile southwards along the shore, they came upon holly trees. And, but we don't get a description of the holly trees. Where do they find holly trees? Stumps and dead boughs were rotting in the shallows. The remains, it seems, of old thickets, or of a hedge that had once lined the road across the drowned valley. Um... And the, this, this is a passage I remember we talked about last time. Um, but I, I love that we've got their fear. They're struggling across the ro- fallen rock and stones. Their nervousness about the, dar- the darkness of the water. Right. And then they came upon holly trees, which should even for us remind us of the elves and of Holland at this point and the wholesomeness that Gandalf talked about there. Um, but instead of he builds our expectations. This sounds like it's going to be a relief. A mile southwards along the shore they came upon holly trees. Dead rotten trees. Stumps and dead boughs were rotting in the shallows. Has the lake killed them? It seems like it. The fact that they are described as rotting, right? These are presumably trees, or at least a grove of trees that has been here for a very long time, as Gandalf is going to confirm, right? 
but yes, Penloth, here we have the the wholesomeness is dead. The wholesomeness of Holland has been overtaken and corrupted and consumed by the unwholesome water of the lake. Um, yeah, they, um, uh, the trees have been drowned, Aranos. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's interesting, Eric. Rot- rotting here is the first... Rotting is the first assertion of active, ongoing destruction or corruption. Everything else um, uh, so far was a result, and this is an activity. I think it's a really good dis- uh, description there. Um, yes. This active battle between... And this is not an ancient battle. Like, this didn't happen a thousand years ago, right? The present participle, rotting... You know, we're rotting. They were rotting. Um, is um, suge- again, it, it, as as Eric says, it suggests current activity, right? This is a corruption that is still happening right now. Um, they're not safe. The threat, the unwholesomeness of this lake, is still active, right? Acting on the very environment. Um, and now, Bjorning, exactly as you're saying, this, we do then get the contrast. Having set up the contrast, right, that came upon holly trees, oh, but they're dead and rotting holly trees. But then we come back, right? But close under the cliff there stood, still strong and living, two tall trees, larger than any trees of holly that Frodo had ever seen or imagined. Their great roots spread from the wall to the water. Again, like the active verb there, right? Um, the trees aren't just there. They are actively filling this space, spreading. It's like they're um, spreading from the wall to the water. They're stretching out between the wall and the water. They're not like, explicitly keeping the water back, but it's almost as if they are, right? As if the span of their great roots has kept the water at bay. It's as if that's the case. I'm not saying it's literally the case, right? But it, it kind of conveys that that um, that idea. Exactly, Eric. Like, they have their backs against the wall and they're pushing back on the lake, right? Um, under the looming cliffs, they had looked like mere bushes when seen from afar off, at the, uh, far off from the top of the stair. But now they towered overhead, stiff, dark, and silent. Notice the water was called silent, there was a bubbling noise, then silence. And it was called dark as well, right? And stiff doesn't seem so very complimentary. Um, so the words that he's using to describe this, it's not like it's a night and day thing, right? They are dark and silent like the lake is dark and silent, right? Um, throwing deep night shadows about their feet, standing like sentinel pillars at the end of the road. Um... Yes, you're right, Abelard. I love the way that those two monosyllables make you slow down, right? Um, especially in such a long sentence. That last sentence is like, what, three lines here on my slide, right? Under the looming cliffs, they had looked like mere bushes when seen far off from the top of the stair. But now they towered overhead, stiff, dark, and silent, throwing deep night shadows about their feet, standing like sentinel pillars at the end of the road. Yes, notice, um, I, I agree with you, Abelard, I think it's very important. Stiff, dark, and silent. 
really stands out in the middle, right? The the whole cadence of the se- of the sentence pauses there, um, and then continues again. And Brick Tales, you're right. Night shadows is hyphenated, right? The deep night shadows about their feet, as if like we needed a different word, or you know, as if in in Westron, from which the book is translated, there's a different word for there's shadows, and then there's night shadows, right? Um. Yes, throwing deep night shadows about their feet. Um, there's something intimidating about these trees, I think. They're not comforting. Comfort is not the experience that we get at this description, right? They're dark and silent, throwing deep night shadows, standing like sentinel pillars, and they might be guarding against, standing guard against you, right? They're towering overhead, they're stiff. That suggests they're strong, right? Um, they're straight and strong, but they're um, not comforting. Not comforting. Um, yeah, Bjorn Sandra, that's exactly what I was thinking that I was building up for. Um, uh, he says it's almost like the company is witnessing a standoff between two powers that are both comparatively hostile to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, the lake and the holly trees are at war with each other. The company has a preference, right? I mean, if they have to pick, they're on. They're going to be on the side of the holly trees, no question, right? They don't want anything to do with that lake. Um, but the holly trees, holly trees don't care, right? Holly trees are interested in them, right? Um, they're standing there like sentinel pillars, um, and are still standing guard. So, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. I think that that's. I think it's a really, that is the kind of feeling that we get, that the lack of comfort, the sense of strength, um, but the, 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 the non-comforting, you know, <laughs> nature of their, uh, of their response there. Um, yeah, yeah. One last thing that I would emphasize that I just love about this. Notice with the dead holly trees, right? the effect of the lake. The lake is called unwholesome. It's called unclean. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's green and slimy and greasy, right? Um, it's stagnant, meaning it's associated with, with death, right? With death and with decay. And we see that it, that's the effect that it's had on the holly trees. Right? It's killed the holly trees. Stumps and dead boughs were rotting in the shallows. Right? The remains of old thickets are of a hedge across the drowned valley. The valley has been drowned. The trees have been drowned um, and are now rotting. Everything with this lake has been associated with stillness and death. But then, what was that sound? Right? Um, when you combine these two things, the deathly effect of this water, um, and like the deathly rotten nature of this water and the, um, and the effect, the, the deadly effect that it has on other living things, but there's something in it. There's something alive. There's something moving. Something broke the surface. Something is making a bubbling noise and then going silent, right? 
may be approaching them or maybe not, right? Um, it's not merely passive. We get a hint of that, right? An anticipation of the activity of the lake in what it seems to be doing to the holly trees. And what, as I say, the two sentinel pillar holly trees um, seem to be pushing back against, right? Um, seem to be a, that the force that they seem to be opposing. But the sound that they heard, which might have been a fish, but probably isn't, right? But it's something. Um, that it is... That something is moving out there. Um, yeah, really... I just... The combination of those things. The lake is terrifying as an unclean, like, inexorable, corruptive, destructive force. Um, but then the idea that there's something out there, that there's something in the lake um, that might be getting closer to them. Oh, man. Like, that's even worse, right? Um yeah, yeah. Um, Bjorning, I agree. The company seems even more alone in this context. Interlopers, both to the creepy lake and to the stern sentinels. Yes, yes, I agree. And Eric, you're you're right. There is such wonderful alliteration in this paragraph, isn't there? Close under the cliff, there there stood still strong and living, two tall trees. Yes, I remember. We were kind of, uh, at least I was, I know, luxuriating in some of these patterns um, last time. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Bjorning, hang on, let me go back and find Matt's comment there. Okay, Matt was saying, the death of these holly trees is an interesting contrast to the death of the holly trees that Gandalf burned. Here it is decay. Then it was a kind of elevation. Yes, yes, you're right. Um, uh, almost. Well, I don't want to say the trees signed up for it, you know, like that it was an act of self-sacrifice on the part of the trees. But yes, the trees become a crown of flame on the top of the hill, right? Um, they go out in a literal blaze of glory, those trees. Um and when Gandalf calls to the fire and asks the fire to come, right, to come and to come against uh, the wolf horde, um, he, I mean, I, I, he's not calling the fire against the trees, right? Again, it's not, it doesn't explicitly say that the trees are on their side or that the trees are sacrificing themselves, but also even the description of how the trees bloomed into flame. It's as if the fire comes from within the trees itself, as if the, 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 the strength of the trees to resist is like released in one burst. It's as if that, in any case, right? It's not, again, it, it doesn't say that explicitly, but it does sort of suggest that, right? Um, and uh, and I agree, there's, a, there's a, a huge contrast between the death of those holly trees. It's, it's, I keep joking about how um, 
how no horses are harmed, you know, in the writing of this book. But um, uh, but it's not been a great sequence. It, it's not it's not been a good uh, 24 hour period, right, for holly trees uh, in their uh, in their general um, in their general vicinity. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes. Oh, man. Um, Eric, that's a really fun... Eric is recalling perfectly appropriately the pool. Um, Grendel's home in Beowulf. The pool that Beowulf then goes to um, to find Grendel's mom uh, in the second part of the poem. And... um, yeah, there are some interesting connections, I think, there um, uh, between that monstrous pool and the whole... Even, Eric, I would go back a step further to the way that Grendel is introduced, right? He's this creature of the marshes, this creature of the wetlands who wanders in from the wild, wet land um, and into Herod, right? Uh, where the fire is burning. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Resenting the sound of uh, 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 them singing Cadman's hymn in, in the hall. <laughs> right. Um, yes, yeah. So, um, anyway, yeah, it's it's hard to imagine that when describing this lake, Tolkien isn't thinking of that pool at all, right? Um, I, I wouldn't want to lean too hard on the connections between them, but certainly the association of the association of this kind of um, wild and unclean pool, um, you know, with not only desolation, but also the presence of the monstrous. Two things, I guess, I would say about it. The parallel. Two things that the parallel with Grendel's Pool, that Grendel's Pool suggests to me. One is um, it gives us a little hint that there might be a monster living in it. Right? Just in case we weren't picking that up already. Um, because, again, that's that's what happens. Right? Um, people getting snatched and dragged under the water. Um, uh, not on the shores of the lake, but that's where they get brought to. Um, but the second thing that the Grendel connection makes me think of is it reminds me, um, Eric, again, thinking back, back to those early scenes in Beowulf, the description of Grendel coming out of the marshes and coming into Heyrod. The horror of that is this, you know, the, the dark, wild... Uh, dangerous country out there comes in and violates the place of safety, right? Inside the Mead Hall. Um, uh, Which is like, you know, the only light and safety in the dark world, right? Um, And here we see the pool. The pool is encroaching. I'm not saying that Moria is Heorot, necessarily. Um, but the holly is the symbol of 
friendship and you know it was a a nice path leading up to you know the door to a great kingdom um the idea of the lake like grendel himself comes out of the pool and um invades Herod. so the lake itself here is encroaching on the doors uh, again it's sentinels right the, it's like the two trees there uh the two last trees of holly are trying to hold it back are trying to beat back the uh the water uh to keep it from encroaching uh into casa doom itself um yeah okay anyway yeah so it, it's we could do a lot with the Beowulf connection, but we'd have to read more of Beowulf and people would have to know it better, including me. I'd need to review it uh, in order to, to say much more about it. But that is a really fun connection. I'm glad you reminded me of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Mythgard Beowulf one day? That would be fun. That would be fun, Leaf of Starlight. Um yeah. That'd be great. Um, we could have all of those Signum students who have done their own translations of Beowulf assist with that. That'd be great. Um, yeah. And Valor, you're right. It would also give us an excellent reenactment for Mythmood. You're totally correct. Um, yeah, no, that would be, be fun. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, And yes, um, Tarloniel, you are right. As we remember ahead, knowing what's going to happen makes this moment feel sad in retrospect, right? These trees are not friendly. This is not a warm, fuzzy meeting with the sentinel trees, as we've talked about, right? And yet, we will see what we are witnessing here is going to be the last stand of these trees, and I think it will be important for us to uh, for us to remember that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, well, I'm glad I went back to. Ch- I had a feeling I wanted to go back for context, but we needed much more than that. Anyway, uh, so back. Okay. Anyway, here we were. Um, Gandalf's response to this. So remember all of this ominousness, all of this fear, the active dread that's leading them to hug the wall as much as they can and stay as far as possible away from the away from the edge of the lake, which is pretty far away. Again, it's close, you know, geologically speaking, um, but it's only, you know, it's only like, what, a dozen, you said a dozen yards? Um, it's, it's like 36 feet, right? It's like 12 meters away from um, uh, from the wall. That's um, not too much room uh, to work with, but it's a pretty ro- long way for the uh, um, <laughs> for the for a squid to reach. Um, but yes, they're social distancing from the lake is exactly what they're doing. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part until this is not negative one slides. No, 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 no. It is certainly not. Um, anyway, my point is, with that context 
of where we just were and what all of the feelings about that, as even with the trees themselves, which are like beautiful and encouraging, but not comforting, right? Not friendly, not cheerful, not warm and fuzzy. They're still dark and cold and prickly, right? Well, they're, they're, um, um, they're holly trees after all. But notice Gandalf's assessment of this whole thing. Well, here we are at last. Here the elven way from Holland ended. Holly was the token of the people of that land, and they planted it here to mark the end of their domain, for the west door was made chiefly for their use in the traffic in their traffic with the lords of Moria. Those were happier days, when there was still close friendship at times. Those were happier days. Um yeah, this is super cheerful, Bjarnasoner. He's not been this cheerful for a while now, right? Um Notice especially how odd this sounds right after the description of the dead and rotting holly, right? Um, like, help, thank you for helping us understand um, the even more disturbing significance of the uh, destruction of those holly trees. Um, but, um, yeah. Josh, really great question. Josh is wondering about the sense of the word happy when Gandalf says those were happier days. Um, does it mean in the modern, happy in the modern sense of being pleasant or the older uh, meaning, which is more like lucky? Um, I think... I don't think happier in the sense of more fortunate. I think he means happier, more cheerful. Yeah, I mean, a little bit of both, but, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I do think there's some bittersweet melancholy, Dorward. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yes, yes. Um, and I, so on the one hand, I see what you mean. Um, sorry, who was talking about the second age? Um, uh, yes, Justin was saying it's not not often someone refers to the Second Age events as happier days. Um, yeah, right. I mean, that, uh, agreed, agreed. But um, but at the same time, there were you know there were a lot of good times in the Second Age. Like there there were some there were some dark patches, right? But there were just centuries and centuries of uh, lots of happiness, right? Um, before the bad stuff. Exactly, Kurtzimus. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I agree. Again, it just emphasizes, right? Um, you could easily, very easily, have a quite different reaction from Gandalf here, right? You could easily look at this and say, well, you know, uh, uh, so it comes to an end, right? Uh, all such pleasant collaboration between, um, you know, between folk of different race, right? Um, behold now the final decay and decrepitude of this once proud empire, right? I, I totally could have gone in that direction. In fact, the previous paragraph kind of did go in that direction with the dead and rotting holly trees, right? But instead, 
Gandalf is going to focus on the two living trees, right? Holly was the token of the people of that land, and they planted it here to mark the end of their domain. Um, so he wants to emphasize, A, we've arrived. This is totally it, right? We can be, I'm, I'm providing you evidence that this is the spot of the gate. You can't see a gate, right? Um, but uh, but trust me, this is totally the gate. We've absolutely found the place. Um, remember, there was some doubt about that, whether they'd be able to find the doors. They found the doors, right? So he's confirming, okay, we can, we can cross that off our list of things to worry about, that we're not going to find the doors. We've totally found the doors, and here's the evidence. Holly was the token of the people of that land, and they planted it here to mark the end of their domain. Um... And I know that because we know that the West Door was made chiefly for their use in the traffic with the Lords of Moria. See? And then the somewhat uh, unnecessary? Those were happier days when there was still close friendship. We're going to stand here in the, in the, with the darkness closing in around us and the unwholesome lake creeping up from behind and whatever was making bubbles out there now sliding silently below the surface of the water towards us. But we're going to pause to remember those happier days when there was still close friendship at times, even between dwarves and elves. And it goes without saying, when all of these holly trees were still standing and no dark, malignant, stagnant lake was threatening to engulf us all. Um, yeah, um, I agree about the idea that there's a, this is a a threshold to be crossed, right? Um, but, um, yeah, uh, Drow Snake, you were talking about that. Um, they're about to cross the threshold of some kind. Yes, but notice what he is emphasizing about that threshold. This is a threshold. This this thing we're going to cross, right? This threshold that we're about to cross. These were once open doors. We're not the transgressors here. We're the throwback to the old happier days. These doors were made to welcome allies. This was not a door of defense. I mean, it is a door of defense, but it's not, that's not its purpose, right? These doors were built in order to allow, you know, friends to come in. Um, think back, it's been a while in our discussions, but think back to the discussions of Moria and going to Moria. Think of Boromir's objections. Think of Boromir comparing this moment, right, coming to the gates of Moria. He was comparing this, you'll remember, to going and knocking on the doors of Barad-dûr itself. Right? That was what a horrible, dangerous, bad idea that sounded like to him. Right? Um, but when we get here, Gandalf is pointing out this is, in theory, in principle, quite the opposite of that. This is a friendly place. And they have come in front. Look, dwarves and elves together. There's a dwarf and an elf both here, right? We are like 
the good old days of the happy second age come back again here, right? We're a little, you know, nine person plus temporarily one pony um, recapitulation of the friendship of the of those old days, right? They belong here. The lake, the lake is scary, but it's not. That's not. I, do you see the sense Gandalf is creating? The lake doesn't belong. The lake is the interloper. This all might look like the lake is like the unwelcome mat thrown out by Khazad-dûm, right? Remember how scared they were all to go into Moria, right? And now, like, it's there's a moat. Um, this horrible, uh, unwelcoming thing, right? This malignant, stagnant, lifeless, life-taking, suffocating, deadly thing. Um, and Gandalf says, that doesn't belong here. We belong here. We have come in the spirit of this threshold, right? We have come to cross the... We're recapturing the older days, right? Um, he's kind of putting this in this whole new context. And I think that's pretty cool, right? That's a, it's a really interesting way for him to phrase, to frame this. It isn't exactly that he's saying that shadow after all is a small and passing thing, but it's a little bit like that, right? Um, there is a certain kind of invitation to Estelle, I think, that Gandalf is providing here in this first paragraph. Not just cheerfulness. He's providing that too, but not just cheerfulness. Like, let's look at the big picture here. Let's look at the context. We are who belongs here. And it is a little bit like Aragorn did under Weathertop Bjorning. I agree with that. But it's more mm, specific. It's more context-specific. Um, when Aragorn sings the story of Baron and Luthien, he raises their spirits and he brings them hope. It's a story of hope. Um... But he, um, uh, but it's not like a, has nothing to do in particular with Weathertop, exactly, unless it is vaguely relevant to, you know, the connection between elves and the cooperation between elves and, and, and men, um, as he was remembering Elendil, remember, uh, standing on Amon Sul and waiting for, uh, Gugala to come. Um, but, um, Anyway, um, this is more specifically relevant, right? He's inviting them to think of themselves as part of a long tradition, as part of the, again, they're the ones who belong here. The creepy lake is, uh, is a newcomer. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now we get to the dwarves and elves. Yes, I believe this is the first time that we hear Gimli and Legolas talking to each other. I mean, Gimli's not spoken more than, what, twice? Two or three times? I mean, Gimli's not said so many, so very many things in the book so far. Neither has Legolas, right? Um, neither of them have been very active as characters, other than the snow running scene, 
with Legolas and Gimli's adorable excitement about coming closer and closer to Khazad Doom. Um, yeah, Tessa says it's actually surprising how minor Legolas and Gimli are as characters. Tessa, there are so many things in The Lord of the Rings which, when you read it carefully, you realize are not actually in the book, right? Things like Legolas and Gimli's character, which is left to us, right? They're, Tolkien does such a wonderful job. He is just a master at inviting us to invest our own imaginations in the story. And so much of Legolas and Gimli's characters, for instance, we supply ourselves, we imagine ourselves, and he hasn't actually said it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah, Bjorning, I agree that Gimli is a bigger character than Legolas. Totally agree totally agree. Um, but um, but in any case, this is the first time... Kurtzimus, that I think is exactly right. Tolkien's really good at the unspoken. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Eric, I agree. It's hard for kids these days <laughs> to recapture that sense because I remember it too. The sort of surprise at finding Legolas to be such a major character in the movies, right? It felt almost jarring. Um, and I think it's hard for people growing up and coming to Tolkien in the post-Peter Jackson era um, to have quite the same. Instead, now, there's a strong pressure in the other direction. Like, people have to read carefully to realize, I think, how minor a character Legolas actually is. Um, yeah, yeah. It's even more noticeable in the Hobbit movies. What, the expansion of Legolas's role? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a little bit more. Um... But, um, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> Cal Elrod says, Fatty Bulger is legitimately more of a character than Legolas. <laughs> Maybe. Um, a kind of sp spicier character in some ways. Um, but, um, anyway, um, Okay. Well, also, he's hot. Who Nerdus Apiens? Um, Fatty Bulger? Probably. Probably. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> dwarves and elves. Um, notice what... Um, notice what triggers them. Or how they respond. Right? Um... Gandalf has just said, those were happier days when there was still close friendship at times between folk of different race, even between dwarves and elves. Now, Gandalf's use of the word even points to the fact that the dwarf and elf friendship is especially unlikely. We're given no context for this. I mean, if you read The Hobbit, you also received very little context about this, but enough to kind of 
take it as read that dwarves and elves don't get along. And then, of course, we see the Elven King and Thorin not getting along, and so that seems amply reinforced. Um, so we have the Hobbit to uh, fortify us in our acceptance of the idea that dwarves and elves um, are unlikely to be in close friendship. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and Bjorning, you were right. The, antip the idea that dwarves and elves don't get along has been made a part of so many post-Tolkien fantasy traditions that it seems like an absolute given, right? Um, and um, and yes, so that's just kind of interesting how that sort of builds, right? Um, we're not certainly in the Lord of the Rings told anything about their history. Gandalf seems to take it for granted that it's unusual for them to get along. And Bricktails is right to remind us that we did have that reference. Um, it was Gandalf, wasn't it? Who said that if all the grievances between elves and dwarves are to be brought up here, we might as well abandon this council. Uh, right, so there are, you know, a long list of grievances, presumably in both directions. Um, so again, that, that fact is established. We're not told what they are, right? Um, but um, uh, but we're told, you know, we're told that it's um, um, it's definitely it's definitely a thing. And Tessa, you're right. Both races have very very long memories. Yes, yes. Um, but look at Gimli and Legos's response. Gimli says, "It was not the fault of the dwarves that the friendship waned." I have not heard that it was the fault of the elves. What we have here is a paradoxical disagreement, right? Um, right? I mean, they are contesting with each other to see which one of them can, what, adhere most to the old friendship? You know, Gimli is bragging about the fact that Dwarves have, or at least remain, ready to continue the friendship with elves, right? That's what it means to say that it's not their fault, that the friendship waned, right? Um, and Legolas says, competes with him. I have not heard that it was the fault of the elves. Neither one of them is accusing each other, right? Though both of them implicitly accuse the other race, right? Um... But again, again, there's the the sort of notice. What I want, what I'm trying to get at here is the ironic nature of this, right? Um, where one person is saying, "I want to be friends more than you," and the other person is saying, "No, I want to be friends more than you," which is a super weird thing to compete about, right? So that's going to lead you to disagree. You're going to fight now because you can't uh, decide which one of you wants to still be friends most. 
I mean, that's kind of the the sort of underlying joke of this exchange, right? Um, and uh, it seems to me a really interesting and indirect way for Tolkien to point to the problems here. Neither one of them immediately leaps to specific grievances, right? Ghibli's, Ghibli's response to the idea, you know, the, the recollection of dwarves and elves being friends doesn't respond by saying, well, that was before they did X, Y, and Z. He could do that, right? I mean, that's the thing that Glowen kind of did, right, or started to do, right? Um, uh, but that's not what he does. And Legolas doesn't do the... Um, He, he doesn't do that either. He doesn't make accusations, right? Um, both of them recall with honor, that is, they still honor the memory of the friendship. They still like the idea of the friendship. But they can't get along about it, right? Um, yeah, and you're right, Bjarne Sonner, I do think that... Um, it's not my job to apologize first is kind of the the tone of this, right? Carlos, I agree there's an implied accusation in both of this. That like it's your fault that the friendship waned, right? Um but again, the way in which it's stated makes the whole thing sound kind of silly, right? Um there are presumably some legitimate grievances between elves and dwarves that would need serious, you know, moderation and forgiveness to overcome. But that's not, it's not where they go, right? That's not how this works. Um, Gandalf shuts it down. And look at the two movements well, the three movements that he makes, right? I have heard both, says Gandalf, right? Um, again, the I it was not the fault. I have not heard that it was. Um, again, that indirect negative statement on the part of both of them, right? How they are both kind of throwing shade at each other um, while building up themselves. Um... Gandalf responds by undermining both of them. I have heard both. Gandalf's just asserted, like, is it the dwarves' fault that the friendship waned? Yup. Is it the elves' fault? Yes, it is. I have heard both, and I will not give judgment now. Um, he establishes himself as an objective arbiter and then tables the question. I will not give judgment now. So, first of all, he undermines both of them, right? Don't get all high and mighty. I've heard both of those things. That it was the fault of the dwarves and that it was the fault of the elves, right? I have heard both and I will not give judgment now. So, both of you are wrong in your attempts to 
you are at least sort of wrong-minded in your attempts to justify yourselves uh, and at the other's expense, right? But then part two, I will not give judgment now. This is a silly time to be bringing this up, right? Why are we even... Why are we even going there, right? Um, but I beg you to, the third movement, I beg you to, Legolas and Gimli, at least, to be friends. Um, I beg you to, at least, to be friends. Gandalf is like, I'm not asking you guys to reconcile dwarves and elves in general. I'm not asking you as ambassadors of your people to establish some kind of new treaty or alliance or friendship between your peoples, right? All I'm asking is for you two people who are standing right in front of me to get along, right? I beg you to at least to be friends and to help me. I need you both. Um... The needs of the company right now come before any of these larger questions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Josh, thanks for bringing that up. I was, um, I was going to talk about that next. Um, I, the at least, I believe is not attached to to be friends, but attached to you two. You two at least to be friends. Not you two to be at least friends and possibly more than friends. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that he's saying you two at least. They were talking about elves and dwarves in general. He brought up elves and dwarves in general. They were then talking about, this prompted them to talk about elves and dwarves in general. And he responds by saying don't care right not an important question right now but you two getting along you two at least there's one dwarf and one elf right here right now right and you two at least I'm begging you to be friends um, and Maureen I agree I beg you is an important that's a, that's a strong phrase on his part but I beg you to at least to be friends and to help me Right, Make me your common cause. Make us your common cause. I am trying to guide this expedition, and I need you both. The doors are shut and hidden, and the sooner we find them, the better. Night is at hand. Both of them, as an elf and a dwarf, this is the threshold of dwarves and elves. Right? Um, the, this is the, 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 the threshold which was itself the symbol of the meeting of elves and dwarves, of the friendship between elves and dwarves. So I need you two to be friends. It's like as if them being friends together um, is the thing that's going to make the door open. Um, yes, it is the threshold of friendship. Certainly, Maureen, as you say, the doorway of their friendship as well. Um, yes, yes. Um, and of course, Matt, as you were saying before also serves as a really fun foreshadowing of the answer to the riddle. Um, if only Legolas and Gimli will be friends and maybe call each other friend, right, the doors in fact would open, right? 
Um, so yes, Gandalf is is quite right, both to recall the happiness and friendship in which these doors doors were built, right? Um, and to think that Gimli and Legolas being friends together will in some sense um, exactly Bjarne Sonner, it's a performance of their friendship as a way to magically open the door. Yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Arnas. Arnas says uh, maybe saying melon doesn't work if there's animosity between people waiting to get in. It's an interesting question, right? I mean, is it is it just a password? Or... You know, if an orc came up and said Melon, would it open for him? Maybe. You know, I, I, I don't know. It's an interesting question. It doesn't seem necess- like automatic to me, necessarily, um, that you... Um, but again, what the password itself is going to be demanding is uh, like a recapitulation of these happier days. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Anyway. Um, right. Abelard asks, would dwarves build doors that open based on fields? Um, and Bjorning does point out, perhaps in, in collaboration with elves. Yeah, that does seem that does seem possible. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh We'll get to the other to the reference of the comparatively low security thresholds in in times past, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, and Trifle is right to remind us that Sauron marched his army up to these doors in the Second Age and failed to enter. So. For all of the lax security protocols of the happier days that Gandalf is going to be telling us about later on, the doors do have strength, right? Exactly, Aspen. It's something like a two-step authentication process. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You have to say, friend, and mean it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're not to, I just I wanted to acknowledge the foreshadowing, right, but we're going to discuss the actual opening of the gate later, right later um, okay then we get um, um yeah, and I agree with you, trifle um it can't simply be in that. Sauron didn't, couldn't figure out the riddle, right? And turned his whole army around and went home. Um, <laughs> I, I agree. I do not consider that a plausible explanation for why they couldn't get, they couldn't get in, <laughs> right? Yeah, good thing he didn't think to read the doors out loud. Um, but, um, uh, okay, anyway, all right. Um, the last touch is really sort of the transition into the next segment, which we're not going to we're not going to do another slide tonight. We already did like one and a half. Um, he charges Gandalf charges 
Gimli and Legolas to work together to help him at the gate. The elf-dwarf friendship gate. And he is charges the rest of them with making ready to enter the mines. Um, they're going to ditch their heavier clothes because they're not going to need it um, against the, the stuff they brought, bought, uh, brought against bitter weather. There's our word bitter again. Um, very cold weather. Won't need it inside. Won't need it down in the south. Because um, it is time to say farewell to our good beast of burden. Um, we'll get to saying farewell to Bill. Um, it's, of course, right after this that Sam's going to say his piece. Um, and Maureen, I agree. There is a, a sort of a, a, there's sadness, right? Um, after all the friendship talk to bid farewell to Bill. Yes, yes. Um, Gandalf is trying to break this as gently as he can. Right, we must say farewell to our good beast of burden. He's not being callous about it. Um, you know, there's a there is there is necessity here. Like this is not this is not negotiable, right? Um, I fear we must say farewell. But he's saying farewell to him, right? And praising him, our good beast of burden. Um, instead, each of us must take a share of what the pony carried. We're going to take up Bill's burden among ourselves. Um, in, in memory, in memory of Bill. Um, now, again, we'll get more reaction to this. His trying to make this gentler. The saying farewell on the one hand sort of acknowledges Bill, you know, it personifies him, right? Um, treats him like a person to say farewell to him um, while still acknowledging that though he's a good beast of burden, he is still also um, a beast of burden. Um, I don't think this is quite a breaking of the fellowship sort of moment, um, but um, yeah, that's interesting, JJ. JJ says it reminds him of when the dwarves had to give up Bjorn's ponies just outside of Mirkwood. Well, that's a happy kind of parallel, isn't it? That might be an encouraging thought. The only horses that survive um, <laughs> in The Hobbit. This is why Bjorn is so careful about it, right? Because he knows um, that this group of dwarves in One Hobbit are people who absolutely cannot be entrusted with horses, um, as the people of Lake Town also learn to their cost. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Bjorn knows exactly what kind of story he's in. Um, yeah. Tessa, that's really interesting. Um, nobody is supposed to go any further than they want to. Yes. Yes. 
Um, Tessa, keep that for next week. We'll come back to that when we get to Sam's response and Gandalf's explanation. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's that is that is interesting. Um, it's not an issue that's raised here, right? Gandalf does not start off by saying, well, it's time to ask Bill if he wants to still come along with her. And Bill is not initiating this, right? Bill is not saying he's out of here, right? Um, but, um, but, but I do think that that we will see that the, you know, Elrond's comment about people only going as far as not being oath sworn to it and only going along as far as their path takes them, um, I think is going to be very relevant to uh, um, to Bill and Bill's departure here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Stunduck, you were right. Stunduck is remembering forward um, to um, to Aragorn's commentary about men taking steps of which they're capable. Yeah, and I'm thinking also of the horses of the Dúnedain choosing to follow their masters into the into the paths of the dead, right, um, where no other beast would go. Um, those horses are choosing. Right, they're choosing their path. They're choosing uh, to remain with the Dúnedain, um, and you know, Arad gets talked into it, but um, uh, but the rest of them choose right away. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and yes, Gildalwin, I agree. Um, when he says "say farewell," it's not just about a word of leave taking, but it's also. Well, foreshadowing or at least points to Gandalf is going to in fact um, bid Bill to fare well right to um, you know may his travels go well he's going to lay a blessing upon him that his travels should go well should prosper um, so yes he is in fact going to say farewell in a very literal sense to Bill um, and so there's kind of a hint of that here. I suspect Gandalf's already planning that. I don't think, um, and this I think maybe is a kind of hint at it, that Gandalf is not just planning to abandon Bill um, and the blessing that he lays on Bill uh, in order to reassure Sam, which we'll see soon, I think is something he's already contemplating here. Um, yeah, I think that's um, I think that's pretty cool. Maureen says Gandalf is pretty optimistic on how quickly they'll get the doors open. That's also true, right? You better hurry up and unpack because uh, we're going to be through those doors in a jiffy. Yeah, we'll see. Um, All right. I will end our discussion there, our seven-year anniversary discussion, as we contemplate the doors of friendship uh, and... um, think about Legolas and Gimli working with uh, with Gandalf here. Uh, we will uh, continue next week uh, as we will get Sam's outrage and think much more about Bill 
uh, in uh, in the coming passage. But thanks, everybody. And uh, I will do our field trip now. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Um, and in 10 minutes, uh, happy birthday to the professor. Um, so um, happy anniversary. Happy seventh anniversary. Um, and uh, we'll stick around uh, for the field trip. So thanks, everybody. Good night for those of you who can't join us. And welcome to those who can. How are you, Valerie? Uh, happy anniversary, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Like I said, I always use my kid as a mile marker when it's the anniversary. I just have to look how old my kid is. I'm like, yep, seven years. Seven years. Exactly. Exactly. Just a little baloney loaf when we started. Yes. Yes. Falling asleep at uh, the film film project. Yes, there there are several young children who are uh, (laughs) can sort of stand as uh, living uh, mile markers for uh, our progress here on exploring the Lord of the Rings. And it's true, Mrs. Manrique, that uh, it's already Tolkien's birthday in the UK, for sure. Yeah. Ah, time zones. My old Indeed enemy. it was when we began. All right. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're getting to my, my, one of my favorite subjects in the book, which is just the enmity between Legolas and Gimli. And I know they're minor characters in the book, but... I think there are more than enough readers out there who have found a favorite in one or both of those characters. But they're they're passive aggressive and barbs and yeah. general general enmity towards each other, which is less of a less of blood enemies and more of a oh he knows what he did. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Um yeah, no, I agree. Very, uh, very odd couple kind of deal. <laughs> It is a really fun element to the book, and of course we're gonna we're gonna see more of that soon. This is the first introduction of the idea of um, uh, uh, of you know the friendship between Legos and Gimli. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a really fun um, it's a really fun little theme in the book for sure. Yeah. And you're right, it has influenced so much fantasy after. I think it's one of the base. If, like, if you've never read Lord of the Rings but read some fantasy, like that's a trope everyone knows. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, we are headed off to Echad Terthas again. Back still in Elfland over there. Last okay. time we were just kind of theorizing about how... Um, Sauron might have attacked this area in during those happier days of the Second Age, mm-hmm. when Sauron was marching his armies through Ereg- through Eregion. Okay, right. Yeah. So here we are. I think what we were going to do is, so we were looking at this place and trying to figure out like what happened here. Oh uh, yeah, we had our blinders on. That's right. Yeah. So I think we sh- we're going to ride around a little bit more today and then maybe up north into Western Oregon 
and uh, get the lay of the land up there. But first, let's let's kind of go around this peninsula a little bit mm-hmm. and see what else we can see. We got the right. We got the road. We went down the road that way. So we're coming up the road. This is up the road. Yes. Yeah, so this is the road that's connecting Enidwyth to Tharbad mm-hmm. and branching off. So this would have been a this would have been the direct way from Tharbad or up from the south. Um, heading towards Eregion um, and Celebrimbor's, um, you know, capital from the other side. Okay. It, it wasn't a ports, Tyra. We're using, we used Milestone from last week. Yeah, sorry. We, we, we kind of planned those in advance. Um, yeah, so we're down in Swamp. Oh, look at this little, look at this little, this fun little dais up here. What is this about? Bandstand? Kind of looks like it, right? What do you put the string quartet here while people drive by? Yep, for your your woodwind jazz ensemble. I guess so. Look at wow! They got the better detailed filigree over here. Yeah. Just like the other one from Swamp Fleet we've seen. Are those peacock feathers at the bottom? On the wall? Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's what that is supposed to be. I think we've seen that design somewhere before, but you're right, it is really... It's very it's very clear here, though. I think all the other times it was covered by, like, brush and bracken, but over here it looks like a peacock feather. Yeah, yeah. Cal uh, Elros suggests this is the bannock eating platform. Very likely. Um, so you think that the, the, the this is where they had the bannocks laid out for people as it's the refreshment stand. It's where the mm-hmm. refreshment table was. Very yeah, likely. Right now. Yeah, it sounds Bannock pretty good actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Way bread race station. All right, so we're so we're coming right under this cliff that uh-huh. has the buildings up on top that we were seeing before. Yep. And we're coming through this. So this was this narrow channel. We had a, got a, what, a wall and this big uh-huh. old gate. And that uh, wall, so there's a big old archway. That does make it feel more like a bandstand because this is like the big fancy gate the important people go through. Exactly, yeah. And so they're... fanfares. Yes. Announcing people from the band. And then you come through and... Wilderness. Okay, I mean, obviously, it wouldn't have been quite so wildernessy before. But we come in in the... the Not so wild before. <laughs> the road is gone. Hang on a second. Does the road turn? Huh. Oh, uh, yeah, it does. Like here a- we go. Yeah, we've got a bridge over here. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I thought you saw the bridge. <laughs> no, I didn't see the bridge. I just, because I was riding straight ahead and looking up towards that wall up there, so I missed yeah. it. Okay, so we go up here. So we get this lovely bridge. Okay, so. Are the pylons on top of the rocks? Are the, are the pylons Checking. built on the rocks? Yeah, they are, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Must have pretty deep foundations then. But. Okay, so this road. Huh. This road is heading up into Western Arabian. Uh-huh. 
Um, are we going to cross over? Yeah, up up by um, what's it called up here? What is it? Gwingris? Why is my yeah Gwingris up there? Um, up in the north, it's going to go up in that direction, isn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Gwingris is like up here. Yeah. Uh, in the very top corner of the map up there. So Yeah, we we were almost there and we didn't hit it. We we only just didn't hit it and we realized it was this one here. Right. Okay. Interesting. I want to I want to though I want to come back and figure out what's happening over on this bank though. Cuz we definitely need to finish this stuff over here. Right, so we're coming in so that the one road so that road curves off and that's the only road that has been maintained at all. There was presumably the road continued this way also. Though it doesn't seem to go to anything. Coming up on a blank wall. No gate. No opening. How do we get up on this uh, plateau where all the towers and stuff were? This doesn't look like a any kind of a road approach. Huh. I mean, we can kind of get through, but yeah, I mean, look at this. This is not like, and the road is overgrown. There was never a road here. Yeah. Now, of course, the wall is built so incautiously that you can in theory get up it. Uh oh. I got trapped. Okay. Can we not jump across there? What are we trying to breach? We can't. There's an invisible wall blocking us from jumping over there. The top of that wall. See it? Top of the wall. Yeah. Nope. It, it's not It's not. Gonna, it's walled off. It's not yeah. Gonna. Okay. We've discovered it, but uh, got nothing. Okay. So this is Karas Galebrin proper up here. Mm-hmm. And where, oh, where? Okay. So this on the right is the entrance to the city on the hill. Right? No, there's still more up there. But hang on, this is probably the approach to it. Okay, so we've got this lower stuff where we've got a big old gazebo and some mm -hmm. towers. I'm, I'm trying to figure out where you've gone. The party split in two here. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I went through and then I went up to the right because I'm trying to get up onto the plateau before I go into Kairos oh, I Calibre. see. Oh, I see. I should have just looked for the biggest landmark and had it there. Yeah, well, I didn't want to leave this behind and go into the city. So, okay, so th there's still there's the city up on the hill. Okay, and here's more. Okay. All right, there we go. Lots of fancy buildings. And he's up again. Not any defenses. These just still look like happy time buildings. Party gazebos. Mm -hmm. 
little mini palaces. I think someone found another bandstand covered in weeds. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, this one over here. Oh, yeah. There's clearly another bandstand, yeah. We still have the railing. Place is lousy with bandstands. Cellists everywhere you look. <laughs> yeah, so, right, you'd have uh, the band playing right here in the middle of this lovely courtyard. We can imagine this all... Mm-hmm. This this, oh, this is this is like yeah. the town square, right? Yeah, now. this is definitely more of a stage here. This is the more you know presenting what's his face, Von what's his face. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. So this would have been like the little little village green. Uh-huh. Okay, but uh, I'm still awful curious. How do we get up? How did anybody ever get up there? A sheer force of will. Apparently. I mean, how did stairs? that orc get Maybe up there? Maybe there were stairs. There are stairs? Maybe. Once upon a time. Oh, maybe there's they used to have stairs and the stairs yeah, aren't there I mean, anymore? Well, yeah, obviously there's been a landslide. The bandstand was half buried with it. Sure. Maybe. But you're telling me we can't get up here? Uh, it doesn't look like it. I don't see any way up. Uh, yeah, no, they make it like you really can't do that. Um, you can. You have to go all the way back to the town and go up the ramp there. Okay, go so back to the town and up the ramp. Okay. okay. We're going to do that. Okay. Okay. I'm going back to the town. All right. So there's a ramp. All right. There might be a beacon where they think the entrance is. So. I like how those orcs make it halfway up the side, but. Uh, yeah, it's, they're, they're they're doing. They must have one leg longer than the other. They're right. Very uh, sure-footed orcs. Those. Is there? A gentler slope over here? No. Definitely not. A gentler slope. Okay. That. Nope, not there. Nope, not there. Nope, You're going to want to make there. a full circuit of the... Oh, yep, yep, yep. Okay, yeah. Okay. I'm kind of see. So this whole area is really settled. You can... This is... It's interesting because this is one of the few places where we've gotten a sense of, okay. Oh, it's it's kind of winding like uh, oh, weather top. Right. Okay, so there is really just this one path. Yeah. They love their switchback paths, don't they? Yeah. All right. Huzzah! We have conquered it. Whose tower are we facing? We're facing straight down into Enidwife? Um, A tower in the distance? Yes, could be. Looks like it. Anyway, one of the things that I really like about this place, even in Eregion itself, 
we rarely saw evidence of just like a whole area which was densely populated with elves. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, we found little like clusters of ruins where they had been. What, there's a whole lake up here on top of the hill? Good uh, grief. That's fun. Was it always a lake? I don't know. This uh, this little plateau is Something's broader than I thought it was. You've got a bonfire over there? Yeah, it looks like. And then you've got this big old dome thing in the middle. I'm trying to get on, up onto yeah. that. Um, Hot spring? Maybe. Oh, man. Anyway. Point is, it was relatively rare that we found an area as broad as this. Not just this plateau, but then all of the area down around it. That was yeah. once like, you know, this place where elves just lived. It was it's, you know, not not fortresses. None of these are defend, you know, are defensible or designed for defense. Yeah, they're all pretty. This is probably the big center place up here. This huge domed place in the center of the, in the highest point of the high plateau. From up there, their elf eyes would have had a heck of a view. Absolutely. All the way down to the to the Grey Flood. And over to Cardolan, down into Enidwyth, where we can see the tower. We just saw the tower in the distance. Over to the mountains on the other side. Probably. This reminds me of the, the elven city near Thorns Hall. Yes. Yes. The old wrecked city? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one that got covered in rubble, like parts of it look this scale. Yes. It's bigger. This would be bigger. Yeah, exactly. And this doesn't the whole thing doesn't feel like a city exactly. It's just like a big old sprawl, right? Like a landscape dotted with villages and settlements all over the place. Like elves lived everywhere on this whole, you know, section of land between the rivers, right? Um, and as I say, I feel like that the expanse of that gives a sense of like a large elvish population living here on this land in ways which we have just not really seen, I think. Um, we've only just seen, you know, we've seen a place that has like a bunch of different isolated ruins like Arid Luin or like uh, Eregion, but they were still pretty isolated. Like Gwingris is this compact town. Right, and then nothing outside of it, just fields and forests. No evidence that there was ever any elves that lived anywhere between them and the, you know, the truck stop halfway down the road. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Penloth, you're right, we have seen the refuge camp from this, which is Rivendell. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and this gives you a sense of how small Rivendell is in comparison. And keep in mind, we're still, this is still just a suburb, right? We haven't even been into the main city of Caris Calebrin, whose walls we bounced off of before. Um, and, um, 
And then, of course, all of that is itself on the outskirts of Tom Mirdine and Achad Mirabel. Um, oh, wait a second. That's Tom Mirdine itself that I bounced off of? Get out of <laughs> it. Oh, my. Okay, we'll have to look at that next time. Um, okay. All right. So next time, we'll come back here. Well, which do you think we should do first? Should we either go across the bridge and up and explore Western Aregion? Or should we go across and see Tom Mirdine and the way they've redone? I think we should go to Western Aregion first because we should, that's pretty much the end of this region before we cross yeah. back into Aregion. Okay. I agree. Okay. Yep. Yep, and then because then yep, then we'll be headed off towards Moria and the other scenes in Eregion. But, but of course we get to explore actual Tom Mirdine and Echad Mirabel. Um, hope, hoping now that they've installed this whole region and the and allowed us to ride straight from one into the next, that we now get to go to more of these regions that we could only see from a distance. Um, exactly. Last time we were there. Okay. Cool. All right, that's what we'll do. We're almost done with Swanfleet, back through Eregion, and off to Moria. That's where we're headed. Would you like to see this in a pristine state, though, Corey? <laughs> oh, in the flashback, is it? In the, There's the skirmish. There's also the Before the Shadow storyline, which I'm suggesting we can should do. But there's the actual um, Fall of Calibrimbor uh, skirmish. Yes. Oh... And you'll have see. an opportunity to go wander around and look at things before you start the action, so you oh. can, you know, do what you gotta do and then, you know, dip out. Nice. Well, I can actually watch it. It would be fun to do. It would be fun to do. Yeah, we'll see if we can. We'll see if we can fit that in at some point. Um, but good, uh, of course, that makes me even more excited to explore the ruins uh, before yeah. we get to uh, wander around in there. Um, yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Um, but I think we'll stop for tonight. We're already running a little bit late here. Um, but um, so we'll say thanks for coming, everybody. I should be back next week. As usual, I have uh, on, between now and Osmoot, I should be home. So um, on uh, barring unexpectedness, um, I should be ready for next week as well. So Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you guys again next week. Bye now. Bye.